All right. So we are in the Matthew class, Master Class Theology. I am Joel, sometimes called Big Rev. We were in Matthew 26 tonight, and we're going to have a blast. Let's open with a word of prayer. God, thank you for this time we have. I thank you for these dear men and women uh, who are uh, participating in this journey together. And I just thank you for your word, God. You, you challenge us and encourage us, and you, you allow us a journey with you. And that's just so really awesome, the fact that we get to bring our hurts and our issues alongside you. And you, don't, you just don't give us a stiff arm. You allow us to participate in your plan, and you, um, you, you use us, Lord, and you give us hope, even in the midst of all of our ick. We just thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so tonight, uh, we're in Matthew 26. The topic is called Betrayed. Um, I'm not alone in that uh, I, have, I have experienced betrayal, and I'm sure each of you in some way has. And if you haven't, I'm really glad, because betrayal hurts. Betrayal is always someone close to you. Otherwise, it's not really betrayal. It's just someone hurt you, but it didn't really matter. You know, when I give pre-marriage counseling to people, and I talk about what love is, it's kind of a cheesy 80s movie reference in the uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where he takes the heart out of some guy's chest or whatnot. I said, that's what love is. It's like taking your heart out of your chest and giving it to somebody and putting it in their hands and trusting that that person who has the power to crush your heart doesn't crush your heart. That's what love is. And that kind of person that is in your inner circle, that is close to you, that is intimate with you, that person is the one who has the power to betray you. Betrayal hurts. Anyone who has gone through a messy divorce knows this. Anyone who has gone through just any, the ending of a relationship of any kind, be it a friendship or not, the ones who have betrayed me have not been people I have dated. They're people who have been my friends. And those betrayals hurt. They hurt so much. But well, we're here in, uh, we have a betrayal today in our text in Matthew 26. We're going to be uh, in 1 to 5 here. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Man, it's just, if at any moment they're shocked that he's going to be on a cross, because you just don't use the word crucified. Wow. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Every Passover, people expected it was like Messiah country. They were expecting the Messiah to show up and do business. And by do business, I mean sack Rome. Come in power and take care of business. And so... You can't do anything on a high festival because the people will riot, and they will. We have a couple of verses that play into this. Psalm 31, For I hear many whispering terror on every side. They conspire against me, and they plot to take my life. So we're not surprised when the Messiah is having people plot to take his life. And in Zechariah 11, we're going we're gonna to catch this here. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver wasn't a great deal. If you go back to uh, Exodus, uh, is it chapter 20, 21 or 22, 
there, there, there are laws on the books for if somebody gets injured by certain things, and I believe if it's a male or female slave gets injured by an ox that gets loose and gores them and they die, you pay them 30 shekels of silver. And it's just kind of like a paltry sum, nothing to write home about. And 30 pieces of silver is not much to write home about. So we're not going to be surprised when this is going to come up. 30 pieces of silver is not just a random fee they're going to give to Judas. It's God's plan unfolding. None of this is a surprise to God. None of this. In fact, we're going to see in our text today God's sovereign plan unfold even when it didn't make human sense to do so. It's kind of cool. The great irony here is that they're going to try to judge Jesus. Jesus, the judge. Jesus, the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. They're going to try to judge the judge. They think think they're going to pull a fast one on Jesus. They think they're going to get him. Well, verses 6 to 12. While Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. And by the way, right there, that tells you something. People just don't go to lepers' houses. So this Simon the leper, you could probably better describe him as Simon the former leper. Yeah, the ex-leper. Because if he was still a leper, this whole dinner party is breaking the Mosaic law. And yes, you could argue that Jesus could not technically become unclean or what. You could make that argument, but his whole crew would be. And all these people present. So this would most likely be somebody who's already been pronounced healed, whether it was Jesus who healed him, and we just don't know or not. But this is evidently a known figure, Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. John, the Apostle John, in the first chapter of his gospel, describes her as Mary. The Mary. Not Mary, wife of Joseph, mother of Jesus, but Mary as in Mary and Martha. And so, that Mary. But Matthew doesn't, doesn't answer that. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he, he was reclining at table. Picture him back on one elbow, head this way, feet that way. Like you would kind of sit there in front of the TV as a kid. With your, your, your cock in one elbow on the floor, supporting your head, and the rest of your body is pointing the other way, also on the floor. That's how they reclined at table. And so his head is going to be close to the floor. So she's going to pour perfume on his head, we're going to read, and she's going to have access to do it by just kneeling down by him because his head's going to be down there. That's, that was the, the highfalutin Roman way to eat. You reclined at table. So the Jews who were more Hellenized, more Roman-esque, were, were, were kind of like good, really nice, stoic manners, they reclined at table. Okay. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? Now, we don't know if Jesus was using one of those supernatural powers he has of just knowing what the people say, or if this text literally means that they were bugging this woman and they were agitating her for doing this at dinner. And Jesus, seeing that this woman is being bothered, aware of all this, why are you bothering this woman? As if the fact that they were messing with her, that he took umbrage with that. 
I don't know. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. In fact, where they're at, you could just keep walking in any direction five minutes and you will find plenty of poor. This isn't about caring for the poor. Jesus is making, commentators would call this a high Christological statement. He, every once in a while, makes big theological statements about Christ himself. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, if this were some random person talking, you would say, oh, wow, you got to toot your own horn much? You don't always have me, so you're going to take care of me. You're not always going to have me, so I'm here now, so you better care for me. No. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Wow. We're all trying to enjoy our meal, Jesus. What's going on here? Seriously? Morbid much? Truly, I tell you, Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So guess what? We now stand in that line. When we go to heaven one day and we see this gal, we get to say, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Your legacy continued. We got to stand in that line and read about you. This will also be told in memory of her. What man calls waste, Jesus considers beautiful. Think about that for a second. If you've ever had a moment in your life where you've questioned your own life, you've wondered what in the world God is doing with your life, if you've ever wondered why you've been allowed to go through the, the, the ick that you've gone through, if your life has amounted to a hill of beans, if you've ever been so depressed, you've questioned everything and you don't know what to think about where you're going or how you've been or any of that stuff, if you just feel like you're just a big gigantic waste, what once was considered waste, Jesus called that beautiful. God has such a plan for your life, no matter what anyone else has to say. To them, it was all a bunch of wasted money. To Jesus, it was worship. He received that as a touching thing, like it was meant to be a touching thing, and it was. Wow. So if you ever look in the mirror and just don't really like who you are or where you've been, if you think you're just too dirty or you're too wretched or you're too whatever, Jesus doesn't see your life as a waste either. And he finds the great purpose in you beautiful because you're dancing with him. He's the one leading you. You are a sheep of his sheepfold. To him, you are purposeful and beautiful. She gave Jesus her best. We have this, this uh, staff value at the bridge here about excellence. And excellence honors God and inspires people. And she gave Jesus her best. I don't know if she was a woman of means or not. What we do know is they're throwing a fit that she's uh, not you know, buying this you know, really expensive perfume and you know, using it a little bit at a time. You know, she's dumping it all on him. In fact, John's gospel says she then used her hair. So she's going to smell a little bit too. But she gave Jesus her best. The temptation is not to give Jesus our best. The temptation is to sit there and say, well, Jesus, you know, we're good. So, I, you know, I, 
I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to, I guess in marriage, you'd be like, you don't date me anymore. You just take me for granted. Give Jesus your best, not the rest, not just, okay, the leftovers. I mean, it's like, okay, God, you know, it's, I'm at the end of my day and I feel guilty for not spending time with you today. So before I go to sleep, I better pray or something or I'm going to feel really bad when I hit my pillow. That was me. That was a big swath of my life. And I knew better. Oh, yeah. I was a big hypocrite. Not, not just a big guy, a big hypocrite guy. I never did give Jesus my best. Never. I never was this poor woman here pouring out worship to Jesus. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve, Jeremiah 10. That is both an encouraging verse and a terrifying verse. If you are somebody who you, you think of yourself like a dark room, that you are doing just fine when the room is dark because you can hide you and no one has to see you or know you or doesn't have to find out about you and what you like to do and what you like to think about and what you ponder in the deep recesses of your heart, the light is shining all of a sudden. <clears throat> God examines the heart. No, he searches the heart. He examines the mind. Wow. There's no pulling a fast one on God. Like you can pull a fast one on me. Oh, I'm easy. You can pull a fast one on me any day. Because I can't know what's inside your heart. I can guess. about the See the fruit that's on the branches of the tree that is your life. And I can kind of guess what's going down, on down there. But you can pull a fast one on me. But I don't search your heart. I don't examine your mind. I, I will not reward you according to all that you've done. Wow. So why would Judas think he could? Here we go. We'll start with 14 and 16. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him, deliver him over to you? You see, for this moment here, this is where it, it all plays out, the top of your page where God's sovereign plan always unfolds. You see, remember at the top of our lesson tonight, they said, oh, we got to try to trap this guy. we got to try to kill this guy. we gotta, we, we got to do this, but we don't dare do it because if we do it, the people are going to throw a fit and then they're going to you know, come after us. That was the plan. Well, we want to do it, but we can't. Then all of a sudden, one of his inner 12 shows up. Now, class, all bets are off. They got him. They got him. If they can get one of them, one of these 12 dudes, oh, it's on. Forget what we decided in secret. Um, new plan. He's ours. We have one of his boys. And he, he came to us, of all things. Oh, yeah. It's on. Plan Restart it. What will you give me? Well, here's 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas waited and watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So on the first day of the festival, unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want to make preparations for you to eat, all, eat the Passover? And evidently, there's a big bunch of preparation. You couldn't kill. Basically, they, of, 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 of Holy Week, you, you killed the lamb on Thursday to have him ready for Friday. Again, no refrigeration. So you couldn't, couldn't kill them on Monday. 
So you get everything prepared. You got to kill the lamb a certain way to dispose of the blood, a certain way, etc., 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 to make sure everything is holy. You had to eat the meal. If you're going to eat the meal, you had to do it in Jerusalem. So Jesus does not spend a lot of nights in Jerusalem. He hangs up with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, or on the Mount of Olives, or and he's going to get there again. But tonight is he's going to eat the Passover meal. It has to be done in Jerusalem. Has to be. That's so every so every Passover people came to Jerusalem. That's why the that's why the Pharisees or excuse me, that's why the chief priests are freaking out. And it is the chief priests, not the Pharisees here. Because the Pharisees were men of the people, the chief priests were all Sadducees. The ones closest to Jerusalem, the establishment, they're all Sadducees. Okay. He replied, go to, the, go to the city to a certain man and tell him, my teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reaching, reclining at the table with the twelve. And, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad. And they said to one another, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. You don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, and this is misunderstood. Excuse me, the NIV says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. So we're picturing this scene where Jesus is like, he's kind of doing a duck, duck, goose kind of thing. He's going to each person, you know, "Eh? no, I'm not going to put my hand in the bowl with you because it's not you. This one, no, this one, no, false. He's there with his buddies. They are eating Passover. They're eating the tastiest meat of all, roasted lamb. Oh, my goodness. We went out to a, uh, a Brazilian steakhouse one night, and they kept bringing food. They kept bringing meats, and they brought the pork. They brought the steak. They brought some kind of shrimp thing, and they brought the lamb. And they said, can we, keep, can we bring more? And Jennifer and I kept saying, more lamb, because the lamb was the greatest thing we'd ever eaten. It was so good and we love steak we love pork. all those meats were like heaven on earth kind of meats but the lamb we blew our mind and jen she likes the uh, the little mint jelly so here's what they did back then they had when they were eating the roasted lamb they'd have these bowls and they would have the herbs you know because you may you do a rack of lamb you got to you know put a bunch of herbs on there and uh, yeah so they had herbs in the bowl they had some kind of an oily thing and then they had um like a fruit puree that they used. And what they did when they ate the lamb is they took their bread and they dipped it in the bowl to scoop out the herbs and the fruit to eat with their lamb, just like we would have the mint jelly today, etc., etc. So all throughout this meal, Jesus is dipping with his friends, but dipping not in the mouth tobacco way, but dipping in the bowls of topping for them the meat they're eating. So Jesus is not saying here, the one that I dip with is the one who's going to do it. He's dipping with everybody. He's giving us a clue. He's saying, not the one I dip with is, is the one who's betrayed me, but the one who's betrayed me is a close bud because I'm dipping with them. I'm reaching into a bowl with them and scooping out dinner with them. The one who has betrayed me is in that category. All these guys are, because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense for them to go, it's not me, is it? Well, Jesus could say, well, did, I, did my hand touch yours while we scraped the dish? Well, no, 
Hello, listen. No, because they all were scraping the dish together and eating their meal. That's what they were doing. Surely you don't mean more. me, Lord. The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born than Judas. And I like how Matthew writes this. Then Judas, comma, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus uses the exact same Greek phrase here that he's going to use with the high priest at the end of this chapter. When the high priest says, I command you on oath of the living God himself, are you the Messiah? He's going to say the same thing. He answers Judas, and he answers the high priest, ironically, the guy who hired Judas, with the exact same phrase. It is not the most direct yes it has just enough mystery to it that the other 11 disciples aren't going to take Judas outside and start pounding on him. Which is what, as guys, we do. Oh, you are the one. Come here. Come here, Thaddeus. And come here, come on, Bartholomew. Yeah, you know you want to pound on Judas. Let's go. He's going to betray our Lord. Judas, before you go, you're going to have it. No. Because remember, they're talking at the table. They're having a nice, raucous festival, Passover. It's an entertaining gathering, and they're having cups of wine, and they're, they're celebrating, they're remembering the great faithfulness of God, and it is a wonderful event, and probably conversation. So Jesus' answer made it so he... Because so, the, the answer is going to kick Judas's rear end here. He's going to be, oh. So he knows what Jesus is saying. The high priest does, too. The high priest is going to tear his robe after Jesus answers this way. So this answer is a yes, but it's not a, uh-huh, you're darn right. It's, it's not a very direct, it's kind of a, a sly kind of not going to make the room go crazy, but still a yes, yes. Jesus just really knows how to talk. He really understands rhetoric. He understands the way to communicate. You've said it so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. They would not have understood what he was talking about. It would not have made any sense at all. And when you think about it, from a salvation history aspect, there's a reason why if you have a Christian Passover ceremony, you do not need to serve lamb. Because the lamb has already been served. Understand? The Lamb of God has already died. He's already been sacrificed. The one who Paul calls the Passover Lamb has already been sacrificed. But Jesus is instituting, these are called the words of institution, that in a high church we talk about this way. I do a nursing home service, and before I give communion to everybody, we read these words of institution. This is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Anyone who tells you they were drinking grape juice and not wine is wrong because they didn't drink grape juice. But what they did was they cut their wine. 
they cut it with like water like three or four times. So it essentially was grape juice, but it was not grape juice. It was wine. They kind of did this when they were uh, having weddings too because they were shocked when they had the best wine at the end when Jesus' miracle. We remember, we remember that. So anyone say, oh, they didn't drink. So, so we don't drink alcohol because they didn't drink alcohol in the first century. I don't know where you'd be getting that. I will not drink of this until I drink with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, that sounds like there's going to be some wine in heaven. I'm just going to take a stab there. We know there's going to be one meal at least. This great wedding banquet between uh, the, the bridegroom and the bride, the church. And there's going to be some drink at least once. Okay. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. If any of you are, are as, uh, as, as into, into this passage as, as I might be, what hymn were they singing? I'm a hymn person. I just wonder what they're singing. They were singing Psalm 114 to 118. That was the, they sung portions of those psalms at the end of Passover. Psalm 114 to 118. And sometimes they sang Psalm 115. They skipped 114. Say 115 to 118. Those are the ones. They went to the Mount of Olives. The betrayer is a close friend. The worst betrayals always are. I've been betrayed by a very close friend. He won't talk to me anymore. He doesn't consider me a pastor anymore. He, he said things like, I'm probably going to go to hell because I did not do things his way. And uh, he, it hurts. He was my guy. He was my go-to guy when I had problems. He was like a father figure to me. And now... He doesn't want anything to do with me. And it's all because I, I supported a decision that I supported and he did not support. You see, the people who are like that, the kind of person who would betray a close friend are the kind of person where you really don't know where you stand with them because you're good with them until all of a sudden you're not good with them. And... I hate to say it, that's not a friend. A friend doesn't act like that. A friend does not make drama his currency or her currency. I gotta watch what I say because I don't know how she's gonna react to me. That may be how she is, but that doesn't make her your friend. Friends are not like that. As close friends, ever the much so. I thought I loved this man as my dear friend. Love does not act that way. If that is a presence in a marriage, that is not a biblical marriage. That's manipulation. Manipulation is never love. Manipulation is what, 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 what Delilah did to Samson. Oh, Samson, Samson, tell me the secret of your strength. And oh, by the way, I will take to my dying day that Samson was not a big guy. Because that would make Delilah the, the biggest nutcase of all time. What do you mean, what's the secret of his strength? It's his 52-inch biceps. That's the secret to his strength. I think he was just a regular-looking dude that people were freaking out. Why is he lifting up city gates? What is the deal with this guy? So Samson, Samson, tell me the secret to your strength as she lays and strokes his glistening chest or whatever she was doing. Manipulation is not love. Manipulation is what people who betray others do. The betrayer is a close friend. The worst betrayals always are. I pray for this man. 
I, I've forgiven this man. I do not heap any more kindling or logs upon that fire to keep it stoked. I hold no bitterness against this man, but I've been betrayed. And that betrayal hurts. I tried to offer a handshake of, of, of peace, and I got a, oh, you don't want to shake my hand. I'm your pastor. I'm your friend. Wow. Now that's just a silly relationship in the long term of things. This is Jesus. But even then I'm not being fair to myself. Jesus was betrayed by a close friend. You see, we got the expected answer of Judas. Jesus, uh, surely not I, Lord. Oh, give me a break. Is the silver coin still chinkling and clinkling in your pocket? Surely not I, Lord. Oh, it's not me. Uh Oh, please. Why Jesus did not just backhand him right there is beyond me. But he didn't. He played his game. In fact, whether it's sarcastic or not, when he sees Judas next, he's going to call him friend. Mm. The real answer of Jesus, yeah. The deliverance of God's people is once again associated with the Passover meal. Every year the Jews would gather and they would eat that Passover meal. And it was a reminder that God saved them, but an innocent creature had to die, so they did not. And that creature's blood had to be posted over the lintels of their door frames, over the doorposts. That little creature didn't do anything. But an innocent substitute had to die, so they would not die. That preaches. That is the cross. Jesus is our innocent substitute. He is our Passover lamb. You see, Peter's going to get this wrong. Peter's going to have a Maccab... He's got these, 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 these great martyrs of the Jewish faith. All the zealots were like, oh, the Maccabeans. And they revolted against Rome. And, and we get the Hanukkah festival from that. We get all these things. And they pushed back and they were martyred. And they're the great heroes. And Peter's going to mess up when he thinks of Jesus as hero Messiah. But that's not the way it is. We'll get there. The deliverance of God's people is once again associated with the Passover meal. Yeah, it still is. We take our communion, every time we take our communion, the bread and the cup, it's a reminder of that first Passover. The last supper that we celebrate was also a Passover. Once again, an innocent substitute in our place for our salvation. 31 to 35. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. You see, I wonder if Jesus is picturing this picture here of these 11 disciples. We'll take Judas out of the picture at this point. Jesus has died. He's in a tomb. What are these guys from Galilee going to do? They're going to say, well, I guess that's that. I used to be a fisherman. Let's go, let's go find those nets. Let's go back home to Galilee. Let's go back home to here. Let's go back. Let's just... But Jesus saying, no, I don't know. I'm going to go ahead of you there. There's going to be at least one more time we're going to see each other back in Galilee. There's still hope. You see, this is the onset of sorrow. I'm going to be leaving you. 
I'm going to die. But there's a dawn of hope. The onset of sorrow, but the dawn of hope. Hmm. Peter replied, and this is Peter at his Rambo moment. Peter, you know, Peter's the man. You've got to give him that. He was willing to step out onto the water. He had faith. Peter also had foot and mouth disease. Peter was everyone's spokesperson. He probably had a wife, because we know he had a mother-in-law, and we've already discussed that. You just don't, you just don't as, as great as your mother-in-law is, you don't take a mother-in-law without also taking the wife. You just, oh, I'll just have a mother-in-law, thanks. The wife, yeah, I don't need her. I have a mother-in-law. No, <laughs> she, comes with it with, she comes with the meal, but okay. So, yeah. So, Peter is probably older than the rest of the guys. Okay, they all looked up to him. He was the de facto leader. He was one of Jesus' inner three, Peter, James, and John. So everyone respected Peter. Jesus had special things with Peter, and he treated Peter like, okay. So Peter steps up here in faith. Peter's going to have his moment. Now, those of us who know this story, we have to remember that Peter's going to take a great stand here. But Peter's going to take a great fall, won't he? So we remember this moment. We remember it with, 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 with pity and also a little bit of warmth in our heart. Because probably each of us are a little like Peter. And we want to do that too. Oh, what did Peter say? What does he say? Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. My dog it likes to uh, uh, wake me up in the middle of the night. She's an old dog. We usually have our bladders timed well because I, I try to drink a lot of water. And so I, I usually have a, a middle of the night, have to visit the restroom myself. And usually she's got to visit the, her own restroom as well. But as of late, I wasn't waking up and she's still waking me up. So kind of around 2.33, guaranteed, I don't have to set my watch. My dog, Lucky's going to wake someone up and just sit there going, <laughs> okay, let's go let her out. Let her go do her thing. Make sure she, she sniffs every blade of grass. Okay, that's all right, come back in. Okay, guaranteed, all right? She's an old dog. If we don't do this, we're going to find Lake Lucky somewhere. Okay, and that's just what we do. All right, so, Okay. Before the cock crows, okay, so the, the cock was going to crow or the rooster was going to crow sometime during the, the middle of the night. Okay, so before this happens, you're going to betray me three times. Wow. You will just own me three times even. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you. Oh, this is like a Russell Crowe movie. Even if I have to die with you. You can hear the music in the background. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples were, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, they're high-fiving each other. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Or they're, they're just kind of like looking behind Peter's shoulders like, yeah, well, what he said, yeah. Wow. Peter's concept of suffering is linked to the hero. Maybe Jesus would be the heroic martyr like the Maccabeans. 
from the uh, intertestamental times where we get the stories from 1st and 2nd Maccabees where we get the great Hanukkah story the great rebellion against Rome and we're going to stand up for our God and we're going to defend our God and our way of life and our way of Judaism and if we die, we die, but we're going to be martyrs. We're going to, and those make the great movies. Those are the ones who cry at the end. You're like, yeah, he did it. He, he, he died, but wow, he accomplished. I mean, it's like the ending of, the end of Braveheart or something. Like, yeah, all right. I'm, that's not Jesus. Jesus and I'm going to say something that you may not like. Jesus is not a hero. Jesus is not a martyr. He did not die a martyr's death. Ironically, almost every one of the disciples is going to die a martyr's death, including Peter. But Jesus did not. What did Jesus do instead? Was his life taken from him? Or did he offer it freely? Ah. Now we would say that's heroic. But for the sake of her heroism and the heroic, like Peter's thinking, he's thinking, if you die, I'm going to die with you. And you know what? I'll be there. I got my fist ready, or in my case, I've got the sword ready. Peter's going to bring the sword out. And it's like, if someone's going to die, great, I'll die too, because I'm your man. Here we go. I'm your boy. I'm your wingman. I'm here. Let's do it. That's not how Jesus is going to die. Jesus is the suffering servant. He's going to suffer because it is God's will for him to suffer. He chooses to suffer. He doesn't face that firing squad and go, yeah, I'm going to die now. No, he, he willingly gave of himself to pay for wretches like me. That's not a hero. That's a sacrifice. That's the gospel. So Peter, we respect the heck out of you because your head's in the right place. You're just in the wrong planet. Because that's not what Jesus is all about. That's what Messiah was all about. Yeah, Messiah's going to come. He's going to sock it to Rome. And yeah, that's it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. No. No. Messiah, yes, but suffering servant as well. Jesus is not dying as a heroic martyr. He's going to die as an apparently defeated voluntary sacrifice. Satan is going to think he won. That Jesus was defeated. At least that's the perception. A voluntary sacrifice? What a wimp. We got him. He didn't even fight back? Are you kidding me? How easy does this have to be? That was God's plan. We continue... Then Jesus went to his disciples to a place called the Olive Press, Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Wow. I am not a psychologist, but I see uh, some depression here. Like acute anxiety, like, wow. Wow. This is a serious, serious thing 
So if you are ever going through any kind of psychosomatic trauma in your life, PTSD, depression, postpartum, you name it, you've got a friend in him. Because Luke describes it as he's sweating blood. His anxiety is so intense and acute. The argument here is that it is ironical that he's in the garden called Olive Press. Where if you can picture the old I Love Lucy episode where they're standing in that vat stomping on those grapes or whatever and making the juice or, and they're stomp, stomp, stomp. They're pressing. They're making like a wine press or something. They had that with olives. They want the olive oil or the juice inside the olive. They wanted the olive oil so you've got to press the olives. And some of you who don't like to eat olives, you might use olive oil in your cooking. And like, oh, I don't see what those have to do with each other. Well, okay, fine. But they would press the oil out of the olives. That's where Jesus was going to be, pressed. This was going to be the darkest night of his soul. He, he was going to be in that olive press, crushed on the inside. The hardest thing Jesus would ever is going to go through. The person he was closest to was who? Take a guess. Who was the person Jesus was closer to than anything else possible? his father and he is embracing this moment realizing there's going to come a point where his father is going to have to for once in Jesus' entire existence turn his back on his son and he's going to realize when all the sin of the world was taken upon himself and the father just like he couldn't have Adam and Eve and their sinful behinds in the garden of Eden anymore he could not look with holiness and intimacy upon his son and he's going to turn his back and Jesus is going to have to say my God, my God why hast thou forsaken me? And that was going to be the most oppressing, the most anguished moment of Jesus' career, his life. Nothing would ever come close to that. That would be like the equivalent of being a bunch of olives in a press and being mushed and pressed and pulped. And that's what Jesus endured for a bum like me. The worst kind of hurt possible was that. And he embraced it with not my will, but thy will. Stay here and watch. My soul is overwhelmed. Guys, stay here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, make this cup be taken from me. How am I supposed to take this? You and I have been together. How can I How? But not my will. You will, as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Braver words have never been spoken, by the way. I tried to paint a picture of Jesus in the olive press and what that meant for him. And the picture I painted, though I thought it was adequate, does not do justice to what Jesus had to endure. The hardest part wasn't the nails in his flesh. The hardest part wasn't having to pull himself up. You died on the cross because you couldn't breathe anymore. Because you couldn't pull yourself up to breathe. And they would break your legs. 
So you couldn't push up anymore to breathe. That's how you died. Not from blood loss, not from pain, not from swooning unto death. But no, you died because you suffocated. You couldn't breathe anymore. And that's why they didn't have to break Jesus' legs. He's already dead. So not a bone in his body is going to be broken. It would stink to have nails piercing you and on a cross and mocking all that. But that pain is child's play compared to the pain of Gethsemane. The pain he's embracing, the emotional pain. Some of us who have been betrayed, some of us who have gone through that relationship pain would take physical pain all day long to the pain that's inside of us. The pain that we have to go through and we never can deal with because it's inside of our heart. May your will be done. Lean on your team. If you don't have a team, get a team. You should have somebody in your life you can confess your sins to. You should have somebody in your life that you can call your brother or sister. And if you're a guy, you don't need a girl, you need a guy. And a girl, you don't need another girl. You need, a, you need another girl, not a guy. Someone you can turn to and say, I'm struggling, pray for me. Hold my hands, put your arm around me, and go to war for me. And you don't have to worry about boundaries or anything like that. You just your, your dear sister to go to war with you, your dear brother to go to war with you. The one who betrayed me was that kind of person to me. That's why it hurts. He was my, one of my 3 a.m. brothers. Something happens at 3 a.m., I can give him a call, and it's okay. He's not going to be happy to wake up, but oh well. You need to have a 3 a.m. kind of brother or sister. You need to have a team that you, you, can, you can journey with to have your back, to sharpen you as iron sharpens iron. And when you have that team, like Jesus did with his, lean on your team when you go through what you go through. Focus on thy and not my. Not failing to temptation involves watching and praying. He tells Peter, you don't want to fall to temptation? Watch and pray. You need to be diligent. Prayerful. Spiritual eagerness is limited by carnal weakness. We all know people who are like, oh yes, I'm with you Jesus all the way, all the way. And then their bodies are just so weak. They just give in, they give in, they give in. Forty-seven. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas says, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servants of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. But how then would the scripture be fulfilled to say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion? that you've come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple course teaching, and you didn't arrest me. But this is all taking place, that the writings of the prophets will be fulfilled. Then all the disciples, those brave disciples, who said, yeah, we'll die with you too, deserted him and fled. The reason Judas got paid, 
Judas got paid because he was one of the few people alive that would know who Jesus was in the dead of night in the middle of nowhere. There was no internet, there was no paparazzi, there was no photography, there was no anything. You did not recognize somebody randomly. But Judas had been traveling with Jesus for three years. Judas could pick out Jesus in his sleep. That's why Judas got paid. Judas walks right up and all these bearded, smelly guys on the side of an olive tree or whatever, he walks right up, yep, that's Jesus right there. Boom. Yeah, just like your dog knows you more than anything else. You walk into a room with 14 other people, your dog's not going to go to those 14 other people, he's going to go to you. He may sniff everybody, but you leave the room, he's following you. Your dog knows you. Judas knows Jesus. Judas got paid for this very reason. This is why they flipped their lid when Judas came and offered himself. Violence in the defense of Christ is unjustified. God requires no defense. Anybody who says, well, I have to defend God, I have to defend God. Why? Now, defending what you believe in, defending your faith, defending why you, you know, Peter talks about having an answer for the hope that you have. That's defending what you hold to most valuable within you. That's defending your faith. That's having an answer to critics or whatnot, but actually defending God as if God is needing my help. Jesus required no defense. Now, Peter, bless his heart, we know it's Peter because of Mark's gospel. But Peter, bless his heart, you know, it's great. But this is a prayer Jesus did not pray, and he tells us why. He's like, yeah, if I wanted to, I could say, hey, Dad, kill these guys. And then a legion, one for every of the remaining faithful disciples plus him. Twelve legions could have gone, whoosh. If it was God's will that Jesus be delivered from this mountaintop garden arrest, it would have happened that way because Jesus just gave us the example. But that was a prayer Jesus did not pray. He said he could have prayed, but he did not pray. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth, Isaiah 53, 7. And then Jesus, he's going to answer the high priest, he's going to draw upon two Messiah verses. Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7.13. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law, the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. Peter is kind of midway between courage and cowardice. He's in that middle point. I've been there where I'm kind of courageous and I'm also kind of cowardly. I'm kind of in the middle, not knowing, kind of waiting to see what everyone else does and then I come on the scene and go, yeah, me too. Hmm. Okay, so Peter's kind of following along here. Right up to the courier. He entered and sat down to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you going to answer? Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus, like Isaiah 53, 7 Remained 
silent. The high priest said to him, I'll get him now, he said, because if he doesn't answer me, he's going to be breaking an oath, or if he answers me and says no, the people will leave him, and if he answers me and says yes, then I have him. So here we go. Are you not going to answer? I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He gives the same answer he gave to Judas. You have said so. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, that did it. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting in the courtyard. Caiaphas' Messiah is not Jesus' Messiah. Caiaphas' Messiah was Peter's Messiah, the hero Messiah. Jesus is changing their, their outlook. Jesus is the, the Son of God, Psalm 110. Jesus is the Son of Man, Daniel 7. A great end times figure. They don't know who they had before him, before them, excuse me. Peter sitting in the courtyard, the servant, a servant girl came up to him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. You're from Nazareth. You talk like a country bumpkin up there from Nazareth. Your accent gives you away, buddy. You're one of them. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows. You would have sown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. You see, here's the cycle of Peter. And this is our cycle. We're going to close with this. The cycle of Peter is the cycle of the, the confident sinner. Confidence and then temptation hits. And you have not been watching and praying. So you fall. And when you fall, you hate yourself. When you fall, you weep bitterly. You say, God, next time I'm not going to fall. Next time I'm going to do better. Next time it's going to be all about you. If only you'll forgive me right now. And you're like me, playing games with God's grace, saying that same guilty prayer every night when you sin the same way during the day, when you never could give that up, when you never could submit that part of your life to Jesus, when you refuse to be diligent watching and praying, the cycle of Peter, confidence and temptation and fall and sorrow. Whenever you sin, you hate yourself. You hate what you've become. And if you don't, you ought to. You should never be satisfied in your sin. There should never be a moment where you're like, well, that's not bad. Or it's not like that guy's sin or that gal's sin. Boy, you should hear her at work. No. You should be hating that part of you that sins. That should be, you should be actively saying, I, why? Why is this still me? Why do I still struggle with this? Oh Lord, please forgive me. Oh Lord, help me in my weakness. My spirit is willing, evidently not that willing, but willing at least to me. But my flesh is weak. We're Peter. 
Remember what I told you beginning of this journey? You're going to find someone in this text we do each night that's going to be you. I'm Peter. Oh my goodness, I'm Peter. In fact, my know, my be, and my do, my know is this. I'm more Peter than I think I am. My goodness, I am Peter, 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 Peter. I am Peter. Sadly, Matthew's not going to mention Peter again. He's done. Matthew has nothing more to say about Peter. This is it. My no, and you're going to come up with your own no, be, and do. My no is that I need to know that I am more like Peter than I think I am. My be is I need to be more courage and less coward. And no, I'm not talking about going and fighting battles or something like that. I'm talking about the, 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 this living this courageous Christian life that is willing to stand for what is right, willing to, to deny myself when the self is so tempting not to deny to deny myself to pick up that cross and follow Jesus. That's a courageous life. The coward says, well, I'm holding tough cards. The coward says, well, I talked a big game, but you know what? Life got hard. The coward says, well, Lord, maybe tomorrow, but right now, you know, just give me a moment, Lord. I can't do it today. Tomorrow, you're, I'm your guy, but right now, when it matters most, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My do is I need to do my best for Jesus and not my rest. I've given Jesus too much of my rest, my leftovers, my, okay, I, 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 I'm already full with satisfying myself, but I still have more on my plate. Okay, I guess God can get that one. Hello, the president comes to eat at your house. You're not going to give him your leftovers. You go find some European royalty. You're not going to offer them your leftovers, but you're going to offer God your leftovers. Please. Joel, you crazy big rev, you, you give God your rest and not your best. That's my know, my be, and my do. This has been Masterclass Theology from Matthew 26. Thanks for sharing your time with me.